Hi everyone, this is Doug Melia. This is the Same Kit Different Day podcast, and today I've got a special guest, uh, Bethany's dad, Jeremy. How are you, Jeremy? Hi, morning. Yeah, I'm really good. Really good. And how's the lockdown treating you so far? Uh, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I've uh, developed a bit of a a wine habit, a scone habit, <laughs> and uh, putting on pounds putting of weight like everybody else. But, excellent, uh, excellent. That sounds good. Well, we, we've been... Um, we, we've been operating from home just trying to assist and help everyone really more than anything but um, there's restrictions on ourselves going out and doing training and things like that uh, one of the things I wanted to say to you it does feel very ironic that the the, the people that we're locking up in society are the, are the most uh, well versed to this kind of thing now and uh, we could learn a few things from people that have been sort of in captivity I think it's it, it's one of those things that, uh, that talking to my daughter, you know, really does yes. come out that you know, yeah. She, you know, she said, "I'm the expert in this. I can do this." So, <laughs> and she said, "Excellent." So for our, with, with her, yeah, for our listeners, if you could, um, if you could tell us a bit about uh, who you are, um, about your relationship with your daughter, and about some of the things that you've been through, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Bethany's dad, Jeremy. Um, my daughter Beth is autistic. Uh, she was diagnosed around about the age of six. Um, mm. Her part of the spectrum is pathological demand avoidance. So anything yes. that puts demand on Beth causes huge amounts of anxiety. And that, right. you know, will will often display as quite challenging behaviour. You know, Beth, mm. Beth has been in the past very aggressive, very violent, um, it, it's just her her mechanism. It's the way she's wired. You know, anything that yeah. she finds anxious, she she automatically goes into fight or flight response. If yes. she can get away, she'll run away. If she can't, you know, her body instinct is just to become challenging. Um, yes, that led to to Beth, you know, having to go into residential schooling quite early on. Um, mm-hmm. We couldn't get the diagnosis of demand avoidance. So just having autism as a diagnosis, people were putting boundaries and timetables in place yes. to deal with that. Boundaries, timetables, they're, they're demands. So it mm-hmm. was making her gradually worse and worse. Um, that cycle ended with Beth being placed in secure units. Right. That's the ultimate demand, you know, to, to yes. somebody away with a, you know, I, I can't imagine at the age of 11, which was Beth's first time in a secure unit, being put on a ward with sort of 30 other people with, with challenging needs themselves. Yes. Um, but it, it resulted in another hospitalization that began a little over three years ago um, in St. Right. Andrews. Uh, in Northampton, they have this forty million pound hospital, um, mm-hmm. hundred beds, and, and Beth went in there, and within two weeks, they locked her in a cell because they yeah. said, you know, she is so dangerous, so challenging. The only way to deal with Beth is to lock her away. Um, yeah. 
she was subjected to almost daily restraints. Right. Um, and it, it was horrific. The, the first time I went to see Beth in the seclusion room, as they call it, I, I was taken down a, a corridor through a series of doors that were unlocked before me. Yes. And there at the end of, my, of the corridor was my daughter stood behind a big perspex window in a tiny cell. And my contact with my daughter was to kneel down at a hatch at that door. It was, wow. it was barbaric, absolutely yeah. barbaric. If you did that kind of thing to an animal in our society, you'd be locked up for it. If you put an animal uh, in a, a room at home and you didn't have let it have interaction and you fed it intermittently, um, you, you, you'd face criminal charges. But for some reason, uh, in, le in learning disability, it seems to have been accepted, doesn't it? Oh, it, it goes far deeper than that. Um, the, the, the unit did not specialise in autism, despite right. stating in all their advertising that they do. But yes, maybe the yeah. psychologist, the psychiatrist, you know, that they know. Yeah. But the staff who deal day to day with the care of people like Beth, they are little more than, in, in my view, security guards. You know, they, they sit outside yeah. the locked rooms. It's up to them if they decide they want to interact with the person behind the door. If they want to see, sit right. and read a book, they'll sit and read a book. Um, yes. Also, a really heavy reliance on agency staff, which yes. for someone like Beth, who, who takes a long, long time to develop a relationship with somebody, mm. if you put a carer with Beth for 24 hours, Beth instantly becomes very anxious. Yeah. Her body language changes, the way she speaks to, to that person will change because all of her barriers have gone up. It's, it's her, of course. it's how she's wired to respond. It's not something she chooses to do. So the no. staff will then either you know, go, oh, I'm not going to speak to you. Or yes. they're not trained in, in dealing properly, communicating with Beth. So they will become argumentative. They will tell her, oh, don't say that to me. There's a demand yeah. on Beth. Beth's behavior escalates yeah. the key just gets turned further and further in that in that lock um yeah, i think that um that there's a lack of emphasis for me on the de-escalation side of things i mean one good thing that the new laws have brought about and uh, organizations like the restraint reduction network is putting in criteria to say people have to have some kind of experience in positive behavior support they shouldn't just have the, the for me this I'm, I'm a conflict resolution and restraint trainer by trade and the conflict resolution it always seemed to be geared as if you were a police officer or a security guard and it would teach people things like putting your hand up and um showing non um non-confrontational body language when really they should be doing on a course on how to get to know people showing a bit of empathy um and maybe trying not to just label people as as, as, as dangers if you like because to us it's violence and aggression but to somebody it's their way of expressing themselves isn't it absolutely um when beth was moved to a unit in wales um, a little over 12 months mm. ago i was asked to go in and to tell the staff about beth and to to teach right. the staff about pda approaches the first yes. question i asked the staff is who's been trained in restraint Everybody put yes. their hand up. So, okay, 
Who's who's been trained in de-escalation? Not a single one that any any wow. training at all around that. No, it's, that's no. it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's for some organisations. I see it as like a tick. It's a tick box exercise sometimes, and because. Um, ultimately, when someone gets injured or when somebody gets sued or disciplined, it tends to be because uh, an, a physical intervention has taken place. So they say, right, that's how injury happens. Let's make sure everyone's trained so they've got a tick in the box. Well, couldn't half those interventions have been avoided in the first place by, like you say, have, from somebody like yourself who's an expert by experience, giving them a bit of an insight into what to expect and how to manage it? Yeah. yeah. What they basically yeah, did with Beth is they got her to the point that she was so bored and frustrated and anxious locked away in these cells that yeah. when they did open the door she would fly at them she would try and get out yes. they saw yeah. that as as beth being aggressive abusive and that became a reason to not even open the door or to no i, I witnessed beth um, being given her her lunch one day and beth had to walk to the extreme corner of the cell sit on the floor right. with her legs in the air, at right. which point they opened the door, slid the food in and slammed the door. It was like right. feeding a, a vicious dog. It was... Yeah, yeah, well, when you talked about the Perspex screen, I had visions of, um, like, Hannibal Lecter. And <laughs> it, when, when we when we set, um, I mean, the, the prison system in the UK, I did quite a lot of work overseas. And overseas, there's still a heavy rely, heavily reliance on solitary confinement. So if you misbehave or even if um, um, you don't follow certain rules, then you're put in solitary and they can keep you there for a considerable amount of time. Now, in the UK prison system, if people are that dangerous or are that unwell, we give them treatment. So they tend to go across to places like Rampton, Broadmoor, um, where the solitary will be managed safely so they can at least integrate. And for me, I, there doesn't seem to be a differentiation between people with a learning difficulty or a learning disability, whatever you, your term for it wants to be, uh, and these people who are sort of forensic patients who are, who, who are guilty of crimes and they're having to put them in safe places. I mean, when, when, you, when you consider the level of violence that those people have offered compared to the, the pathological avoidance you're telling me about, it's got to be treated differently, surely. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Beth, Beth's own journey. We, we escaped Beth going to uh, Rampton by a hair's width. Right. Um, yeah. Beth was in the, the horrific St Andrews. Um, she then was moved to, um, it was a, a psychiatric intensive care bed um, right. temporarily uh, in Staffordshire. They were brilliant. They had yeah. staff that were trained in de-escalation, um, yeah. and they, they first of all, they he really heavily medicated Beth, which was a, a horrible right. thing to see. But the psychologist, you know, he he took Beth out into the grounds, um, played badminton to, with her, just yes. opened up a little bit, built up a relationship allowed staff to do the same and and we saw beth really turn a corner at that point unfortunately yes. it was an adolescent bed and bethany turned 18 so right. she had to be moved we expected commissioning to to look at what had been done in that uh piku yeah to learn from that 
and to find a suitable placement that could mirror those, um, you know, the, the, the distance that had been travelled. Yes. We were utterly horrified when Beth was moved to a unit in Wales. It didn't even, um, it, it, it knew nothing of autism. Right. It was a unit for people with personality disorders. Yeah, does like not have I said before, yeah, yeah. Has autism. And within yeah. just months, Beth, you know, she, she was locked away from the day she got there. Within yeah. weeks, they were refusing to open the door. Then they were saying, oh, mm -hmm. she needs to go to a high secure facility. You know, we're going to recommend that Rampton come in and, and assess Beth for transfer there. And we were utterly yeah. horrified. Um, yeah, you wonder how it's got how it's got to that. Yeah. Well, they they, they admitted in a, that, they admitted in a care treatment review meeting the reason for that request is they hadn't got the staff or the facilities for care to care for Beth. So it was never right. about best presentation. It was about their shortcomings. No. Truly, truly no. horrific. So I know that there's been a challenger around the legality of certain restraints from um, the Human Rights Commission. And yes. that's, that's really where that comes in because the European Convention Standard on Human Rights, it talks about you having the suitable staff. Now, suitable for me should mean, um, th number one, they should like working with those people in the sector. I always used to say, I, I did a lot of work in schools when I left school, teaching um, confidence building, karate and judo, things like that. And I could never work out these teachers who didn't seem to like kids. And I just thought, if you're going to go into a profession, surely make sure you want to work with the people. So I think like the suitability of staff, let's check they want the job and they're not just doing it because it's the only job they can get or it suits their uh, their time or um, it's close to home or for whatever the reasons people take jobs. Uh, they've got to be suitable in that they can actually physically do the job. Um, you know, and re restraint is a necessary evil. There are places and times for it. And I sometimes look at some some security operatives and i think i don't know if you could actually sort of stand up yourself or maintain yourself so they've, they've got to be physically able for some aspects of the job uh, but they've got to be suitable in that um th there's a level of political correctness there they know how to speak to people there's a level of empathy as well um and experience more than anything and when you when you, the suitability but it also says in the human rights commission their numbers so when people say to me oh we can't deal with this because we haven't got the numbers well that's it's actually against the law yeah. they need to have they need to have the correct numbers and the correct risk assessment otherwise they shouldn't open and it infuriates me when it's private places because okay if it's nhs places you can say yeah there's a strain on the system but if it's a private place you're a pr okay you say you're a not for, for profit but i've seen what the directors are getting paid and what people are getting paid so surely you know, put some staff on the floor. Is that the same as your experience? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the ex-chief exec of St Andrews, you know, over half a million pounds a year as a wage, you know, yeah. staff. And doing, doing the research for all the media stuff that I've done with Beth, one of the, the horrific finds was, was to find out, and, and you can go online and you can look for these adverts and you'll still find them. Yeah. A carer on the ward at St Andrew's Hospital is paid right. less per hour than the person washing the pots in the kitchen. Wow, and the, and the level of responsibility that's there 
um, and the risk, the risk factor. And, and you will find those adverts even for, you know, quite specific roles for people with acquired yeah. brain injuries. And they are on yeah. absolute minimum wage. And until caring is seen as a professional career. Yes. Is remunerated because it's a bloody tough job. Yeah. yeah. These people yeah. work long hours in quite extreme circumstances. A lot of them are very, very dedicated and they are not yeah. paid the right way and they are not seen by society in the right way. Caring is a profession. And until there is, you know, the, the right professional career progression, proper yeah. apprenticeships, you know, it will never become a destination occupation, which is what we need. This is why these wards are so full of agency staff and, yep. let's face it, people that aren't doing the job because they see it as something they want to be doing for years and years and years as a career. A lot of them, they're no, absolutely. young students, you know, earning a bit of money while they're going through university, taking a gap year, etc. We need to change that because who they are looking for are some of the most needy people in our community. Yeah, definitely. And I think the wages, I think if you put, without putting that wage bracket up or without maybe putting the perks, I mean, I know the latest was giving them a little green badge that said carer, but there needs to be a little bit more credence than that. Like you say, pathways are great. And I do know there are some pathways from a higher level care assistant into nursing. And it does appear that, again, I'm maybe a bit of a skeptic, but to increase the number of nurses, maybe they're making that pathway easier. But until it has that respect, you're going to have people that are doing it who don't particularly want to do the job. Um, or um, for me, it makes a pathway to abuse a little bit. It makes a bit, if, if, if it's quite easy to get in um, and it's low pay, not a lot of people are going to want to do it. Um, if you are inclined that way to take opportunity of someone or, or you're a predator, then there's a, there's a gateway for you, definitely, isn't there? Absolutely, absolutely. And we, we have seen staff that have been in a, a, a local unit doing a 12-hour shift on the agency, yeah. have then turned up for a shift at St Andrews. They're working two 12-hour shifts back-to-back -back without a break. It's no wonder yes. we keep hearing of patients being found with staff sitting outside the rooms who are fast asleep. There, there yeah, is no monitoring yeah. of the hours that some of these people are doing. No, but you've got a tacker, you've got tachographs for lorries, as you know, and you've got measures in place that keep that keep people from doing it. But you're you're right on that. I mean, when I used to work, when I first left school, I ended up teaching martial arts and I used to do self defence in schools. But I worked as a nightclub doorman, and I'd 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 have to police myself with that. But that was that was sort of back in the day. So I'd work in the daytime, then I'd do that shift in, in the evening. And sometimes I was I was tired from that. And you're getting more and more security companies now that are recognizing, you know, you, we need to we need you to disclose on your CV who else you're working for, partly so it's not a conflict of interest um, and the hours that you're doing so so we can keep you safe. Um, what I'd say on training as well is um, I've seen people that have had a job as a care assistant, let's say at a children's home, and then they've gone to get a job somewhere else and they've then been forced to do extra training. 
So they'll very often just sign them off and APL, they'll say, oh, you know, you've already covered this kind of stuff, but we need you to do our restraint package. So there it is again. They've, they've perhaps done behavior management, they've done restraint, and they, they say, oh, it might be a slightly different type of restraint to us, so we need to get you on another course. So you've got some people, and they come on the courses moaning because they don't want to have to do it again. But they're having physical skills um, replanted in their brains, muscle memory over and over again, maybe three or four times a year, um, but not much behavior stuff again. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and I have, I have seen Beth restrained, and when those restraints have been broken, staff that have turned around and high-fived each other. Oh, that's awful. You know, Absolutely awful. Done a great yeah, you've, well, I've seen the same. I've seen the same in, uh, in in prison. There's been some footage released from prisons recently, and I've seen similar similar uh, accounts of that. So that does bring me on to my next question. Um, what are your views on more CCTV or even body worn cameras within these kind of establishments? I think anybody who is averse to CCTV has something to hide. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I don't, <laughs> I, I wouldn't get in my car and, and drive a route home that avoids all of the um, speed cameras, you know. I, I, well, you wouldn't be able to, but I get your point. <laughs> yeah. um, for me, video footage is preventative, but it is also yeah. something that when that patient turns around and says, in that restraint, I was hurt, I was touched yeah. inappropriately, that there is some, yeah. some evidence there. Because at the moment, when those things happen, and, and trust me, they happen a lot. Yeah? Right. Without video footage, there is no support for the patient's claim. You're up against no. a team of staff who will always back each other up. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I am for for video coverage completely. Oh, that's good. I mean, we've from just studying some of the footage from um, from the states and also from across Europe. We work with Australia quite a lot, and we've spoke to staff, and they've said, "Look, if I hadn't had this body worn camera, it would have gone the opposite way." And that's sometimes where rogue staff have acted in a certain way, and they've had, they've had to, they've had to go against them and sort of whistle whistle blow on it. So I've, I haven't seen any negative feedback from body-worn cameras. I know there's a couple of campaigns as well for CCTV in care homes. And I remember, and we've all got a personal sort of story to tell. Mine's slightly different, but my granddad ended up in a care home at sort of 97. Um, and it was just one of those where I just felt I couldn't keep an eye on him. Um, and you, you, we went to some extent of putting cameras in things and maybe we bordered a few laws to try and keep keep things constant and keep things happy there um but without the cctv it's just blind trust and like you say the agency staff who were coming in and out i remember my granddad said to me oh i got shouted at the other night and i said why he said oh well i'd been doing some cutting out of a magazine and i put the the paper that i'd left over in my cup well he didn't have a waste bin in his room so after that he got chastised for that he then lost his confidence to cut things out or look at do basically things that he liked to do and he's, he's stuck in his room and i think if someone was on cctv they'd think twice about that they certainly would think twice about any kind of interaction with a patient surely wouldn't they absolutely absolutely you've only got to look at 
the Winterbourne scandal, the Walton yes. Hall scandal. You know, they yeah. came out because of video footage. You know, that's right. Yeah, that is evidence you cannot argue against. The abuse no, that's is right. happening. The abuse is happening in these places. So one of the things I am re refreshed about talking to you, whenever I speak to experts by experience, is always, they've always got their own angle that they're coming from. Um, two observations I made. The first observation was you, you used the term violence and aggression. And I think there's quite a lot of semantics goes on at the moment. And I, I've done a couple of conferences where I've talked about things and people have said, oh, you, you, you've offended me. And I've said, why? And they've said, oh, well, you, you described it as violence and aggression or you described it as somebody ki kicking off and things like that. Uh, well, I said, well, how should I have? Well, we'd like to refer to it as behavior that challenges. And I think there's all this um, effort to sort of segment things or even call things different things. So the use of um, seclusion, like or locking someone in a room, they might say, oh, it's a, it's a time out. And uh, for me, I like how you, you use those terms because they're the terms people understand. And I think if you if you soften sort of, sort of terms sometimes, like restraint becomes therapeutic holds or something like that, it can really make it fly under the under the radar. There's a quite a dangerous technique called a, a basket hold, where arms are wrapped across somebody's body and they're held from behind. Um, which is, you know, I don't teach it, and none of the trainings we work with teach it. But I know people are out there teaching it, calling it a wrap or a small child hold or a tantrum hold. And I think it's important that okay, we're going to move with the times and we're going to change the names of things slightly. But let's not change them too much, otherwise it will get written into a, a rep an incident report. An HSC inspector or a, a judge might read it and say, "Well, it, it was just a therapeutic hold." So, what what what's the problem problem with that? Absolutely. Is it, have you come across that semantics before? Yeah. At the moment, the country is under lockdown. Yeah. Yes. And we're all saying, "Oh, I really want to go out to the park." I bet nobody right. has turned around to a family member and gone. Oh, I want to access the community. Exactly. Another one of those those phrases that, yes. you know, why does going into a hospital mean going outside of a hospital becomes accessing the community? It's going That's out right. for a walk. No, it's yes. normal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no. And you've got patients, but you, unfortunately, patients buy into it and then patients start using that language uh, and it's talking it's talking themselves into getting worse sometimes, I think. It did a deterioration in their health because it isn't natural to start talking to people about the, the interactions you've had today. You say I had a chat with someone, wouldn't you? And there's been a drive. I know I, I met a gentleman from Merseycare who was doing something. He was saying, let's have let's have the basics there. You, you don't you don't go home and say to your partner or oh, I've had a mild bout of depression today. He said, I, didn't feel, I, didn't feel, I felt a bit low. And maybe maybe we need to talk to the patients in a more structured language that actually means something to them. Absolutely, absolutely. And, Beth, and the other thing I picked up on is totally institutionalised after three years of, you know, yes, hospitalised lingo. So yeah, doesn't you know? She doesn't actually say what's 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 the other one. She doesn't have lessons or go to school. She accesses education. <laughs> just so, so the other thing i picked up the other thing i picked up on sorry was um about how you you talk about restraints and i think you i think you're sensible to understand that some people um so, and sorry, some time in there, that again. 
Oh, sorry. So some people in their journey to recovery, they may need to be physically held. They may need to be restrained, sometimes for their own safety. And I'm, I'm glad I can see you nodded and, and you accept that because there's been a drive with some people and they've been saying things to me like, we want to ban restraint or we want to ban seclusion. And I always say to those people, what would a society without restraint or without seclusion look like? It, it, it would be lawless. And if we say to teachers in schools, right, you must never um, seclude a child or you must never lock a child in a room. Well, th there may be times where staff can't hold someone and they might get injured or you might have some people that don't want to be held ever. They don't want to be held. So to them, giving them an area to calm down in, maybe not even a room, maybe a schoolyard or a playing field or something where you can just let them have a bit of space. And um, it's, it's necessary because the moment that we ban the act of containing somebody um, within community settings, I think restraints will go up. That's my danger. If we say, if tomorrow the government says, right, you're not allowed to contain a child, well, how would that work with them running out the school gates? Because we stop them running out the school gates if there's busy roads there. Well, if the alternative to them being in a room on their own is four staff on top of them holding them, surely that increases the, the, the risk of death. Does that make sense to you? In a way. Now, I will have to say I see restraint seclusion, particularly restraint, yeah. as failure. Yeah? Yes. Yeah, I can understand where you're coming from I, with that. I really do. You know, it, it is the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate last resort. And yes. everything else that is physically possible to do has been exhausted and tried, then it may be necessary. Within hospital yes. environments, the very environment is wrong. No, you, yes. you cannot take people who need to to run away to escape that anxiety, to get themselves away from the cause of anxiety. The moment you restrict yeah. that, you know, you will get challenging behaviour. That will result in staff wanting to protect themselves and the patient. The alarms go off. A dozen people come in and pile on that person. If that part, person instead had the safe place to bolt to, or yes. in the first place had the staff that understood and could realize that behaviors were beginning to escalate and could then yeah. step in and de-escalate and divert, the restraint yes. is completely avoidable. The system yeah. at the moment does not have that level of, and I'll use the word expertise, it takes experts to step in, distract, divert, and change the behavior that's beginning. Yes, I, I agree 100% with that. There's a, a gentleman I spoke to, who's one of our trainers in another country, and we were having a chat this morning because he said there was a gentleman going through palliative care. Um, he was refusing treatment and they needed to get a line in him to give him some, some, uh, some medication to ease his pain. And the staff said, look, we need to restrain him. We need to mechanically restrain him. Now, in the UK, we, we don't fasten or, or strap people to beds. Uh, but in other countries, they do. So we basically went in, uh, had a chat with the guy, 
held his hands whilst they put a, a, a line into him. And he said, look, because I held his hands, it was still classed as an intervention and I had to write it down. He said, but at least after that, he could die with a little bit of dignity. Now, this is the sort of the far end of the spectrum. But I just thought, yeah, because where somebody's combative, the instant thing is, right, they need restraining, they need holding. And I think a lot of the practical demonstrations, you say, the expertise comes from people that are good at the moves or they're good at the holds and they'll show the staff how to do it and the pressure testing they'll do will often involve um, somebody rolling around with someone or somebody holding somebody and then like you say it's all high fives and they, they, they physically bruise when people say to me oh I've done my training I'm, I'm in agony and I think well surely something's gone wrong there because if you're in agony from having to hold someone that's struggling and you're tired that's that's bound to fail in reality um, if you're injured because you've been hurt by the people that were restraining you, then we need to go back to, to before that. I think the expertise should come from repeated, let's look at the challenges we've had on our, our sheets and let's create some scenarios around the patient. If we've got a scenario based around the patient's behaviour, what kind of things they need, what they've been exposed to, and then let's run that with every member of staff. And I think you'd see a lot of people stuttering and going wrong and going blank that's where I think people should be tested instead of the pinning people down and the restraining them. Absolutely, absolutely. There was a, the biggest incident that Beth had to date was in St. Andrew. Right. Um, Beth was on three to one staffing. Um, right. But for whatever reason, staff hadn't turned up for shift and Beth mm -hmm. was left with no staff at all. Right. Um, apparently, they were observing her via via video, via CCTV. Um, Beth becomes upset by this because she wants somebody to talk to. So she uses a. It was a. <laughs> um, she used a uh, a sofa as a battering ram. Right. And she actually okay. put it into the uh, the door. Um, yeah. And that door started to give way. Member of staff came yeah. in, put her keys in the lock. The door burst open with Beth battering it. The member of staff ran away, leaving Beth right. with a set of keys. Now, all the staff needed okay. to do was go to the door either end of the corridor, turn their yes. keys in the doors. Beth could not get anywhere. Instead of that, yeah. all the panic alarms go off and the police were called. 19... Yeah police officers attended. Beth was pepper sprayed, leg strapped and handcuffed. Beth was still being combative at that point. Because when Beth had right. a, a PDA, anxiety driven meltdown, you know, she, she will not back down. No. That episode was ended by a very young, very small police officer who made everybody else leave. She sat on the floor next to Beth and she just talked to her. And she said, Yes. What do we need to do to help you end this? Brilliant. And Beth was, just let me have ten minutes to cool down in the corridor. Yes. Yeah. Wow. See, there's a, there's a member Go on, sorry. That incident was investigated by St Andrews. Yes. Everything was blamed on Bethany. 
absolutely everything. The fact that the door in a secure unit was able to be knocked down by a piece of furniture, you know, that, that didn't even appear in the report. Right. It's so it was a select, quite a select report, was it? Oh, absolutely. So there's there's a memorandum of understanding between the police and psychiatric units. It's a few years old now. And one of the things that it talks about um, organisations being trained to manage things, because the danger is when um, all options are exhausted, and I do appreciate in some PQs and some places, so there will the, come a point where there's... Uh, Can you hear me now? Uh, just about. Oh, excellent. Good. So the, the member, I can no. cut that out. It's fine. The, is that any better? Uh, just, just about. Okay, good. There's a, there's a memorandum of understanding between the police and psychiatric units. Um, what it talks about is having the correct staff, having staff who are trained. And the whole reason for that is because if you call the police, the police come and the police do police stuff. So like you say, they hold people on the floor, they use handcuffs, they might even use incapacitant sprays, or worst case scenario, they might even end up tasing somebody. And the one of the things they talk about is having staff trained, and they, talk, they even talk about the use of mechanical restraints or soft restraints to say, look, we're going to come and we're going to hold this person. And even the police won't hold someone down for a prolonged period of time. They will then restrain them in a way that they can calm down. Now, instead of handcuffs, the police woman, as you said there, uh, she contained the area, so she can't contain them in. And for me, in psychiatric units, that's what the emergency procedures should be. They may need to have some form of training in riot shields and PPE gear, um, but having a look at how you can lock down aspects of a unit to stop somebody from going out somewhere, the building should be risk assessed anyway, so that they can be safe in there, because a lot of the time they're safe on their own. Um, I think everything should be in place to stop the police being cold. But I mean, in that circumstance, it does sound like that police officer is the one that saved Beth from, from further harm. Oh, she was being threatened with a taser, so absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. So the moving forwards, uh, there's a lot of changes sort of going on. There's a restraint reduction network, which are putting out a lot of good guidance and advice out there. Um, in an ideal world, how do you see the framework changing? And you, you see CCTV as a part of it. Is that correct? I, I think CCTV will be a, a very big part of it. And um, regards, tr Sorry, regards staffing. Oh, it's all right. Sorry. It went bad. It went bad again there. And um, regards training, have you, have, um, have you attended any physical restraint classes yourselves? Have you ever been invited down to go on a course to see what staff are taught? Uh, no, no. And the way Beth is being cared for now, that, yeah. that does not apply. No, because it it's not necessary. It's not necessary. No. 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 So could you tell me, just before we wrap up for today, could you tell me then what different, what changes have been made at the new place where Beth is compared to the place she's, she's been in the past? I mean, what, what's the difference? What's making it work where she is now? 
Um, the people and the environment. Yes. Okay. In, she's still in secure services. She cannot yes. cope with the community at the moment. It, it's been tried, but you know, as the legal um, statements after the, the damages claim, you know, Beth has been damaged by her experiences. She's, she cannot cope with the community. Um, right. Beth is in a, an environment where she has a, a huge flat to herself. Yes. Um, it has a huge, huge, beautiful garden Beth can access. Yep. It has a high stimulus bedroom with all of her belongings yep. and activities, but she can, if she wants to, choose a low stimulus uh, environment as well. Uh, right. But the staff all are trained in autism and yes. they are all fully trained in PDA. Yeah. They're all part of the Mersey Care Restraint Reduction Network. So oh, right. they know how to de-escalate. Yeah. Restraint is, is the absolute last, last. And they see it as an absolute failure of care. Yes. You know, if, if Beth has an incident, they look at it from a, oh, God, what have we done that let Beth down? And what yes. did we yeah, do yeah, then? Yeah. No, yeah. we have got this wrong. But it's all about having the right approach to Beth. So yeah. they don't ha they don't make demands. You know, no. they will give Beth choices. You know, if, if they yeah. want Beth to do something at four o'clock, then you'll say, Do you want yeah. to do it at two o'clock, three o'clock, or four o'clock? Yeah, a supposition. Yeah, so you're, you're yeah. supposing to the person that they're going to do it. You're just given a couple of different options. Perfect. Yeah. That's perfect. You know, like, you know like what you say about go for the latest one. But you, yes. you'll also say to Beth, you know, the, the staff will say, um, we'd like to do this today. Yeah. How do you see as being the best way to do that? So it puts Beth yes. in charge of the process. Yeah. They, one of Beth's things that uh, totally de-stresses her is role play. Right. She loves role play because when she writes the scripts or tells people what to do, that feeds into her demand avoidance, it gives her control. Okay, right. I have turned up for contact there to find staff all dressed as teenage mutant ninja turtles doing role-play, acting the fool, yeah, and they happily do it because they know yes. if they do that, if they if they meet Beth at her level, yeah, then her anxieties have gone and yes. everybody's happier. Yeah. They're not having to sit on her and hold her to the floor. Beth's not in a situation where she's bouncing off the walls. Everyone's no. happy. The mileage Beth has made in the five months she's been there, you know, yep. she now goes out, and I don't mean goes out into the grounds. She goes out to the shops. She goes out for walks. Obviously, lockdown. It, it was quite a shame yeah. because just as Beth started to have all this ultimate freedom, we hit lockdown. Yeah. 
And I think yes. that, that's the big measure, is it, even though Beth was given all of that and then it was taken away, Beth yes. accepted it and the staff have helped her. Yeah. No. Yes. But just masses of distance travelled. She, she loves where she is. She sent me um, a video the other day. Because unlike right. a secure unit, you know, we can talk on Zoom, we can talk on That's Messenger right. like we're talking now, we have video calls. Yeah. Um, she can send me pictures. There's a picture of Beth yeah. sitting in the garden with ducklings nesting in the garden, right. you know, and they're all over Beth. You know, Beth yes. has got a garden with a paddling pool. She's got her pet guinea pigs. So Brilliant. all of these ridiculous blanket policies that secure units have this unit has looked at them and gone, which of those do we actually need? Yes. Yeah? Yeah. So, okay, yeah, person, Beth can't have access to sharp knives in the kitchen. Yeah, that's understandable. But yeah. whereas in secure units, I have seen Beth being given a breakfast in um, like a polystyrene tray that you'd have McDonald's food in. And to eat, right. eat Weetabix, she would have to break the corner off that tray and scoop the food into her mouth. Yeah. Wow. Beth, Beth has knives and forks and normal cutlery and all of that now because yeah. it's all about a positive approach. Yes. Yeah. Beth loves it, yeah. responds to it, and she is just... She loves life. She loves being where she is at the moment. They are an amazing bunch of dedicated people they really That's are. great it's great to hear a, it's great to hear a positive story i mean we uh, i i do a lot of training in the uk but i travel to i do work in australia and i visited a hospital in australia and i was amazed that they had hens just roaming freely uh, the patients collected the eggs there was there was a lot of things that and i was looking i walked in and i looked at some furniture and i thought should that furniture really be there but i think it's because they've got enough staff everything's a person-centered approach and if there's an area of the the hospital where there are things that people maybe can't access because at that period that part of their journey they might not be deemed to be safe being around them then don't give them access but if you've got like you say if they've got someone eating from a polystyrene tray with the corner of the tray that indicates to me that their level of risk from them to others and to themselves is massively high my, my concern there is how do you come down from that because you've put that in place where they're not they're not allowed to have these things um, you make you, they're making a bit of an issue out of it. If I was not allowed those things, the next time I've got a pen in my hand, I might be thinking, well, what what am I meant to do with it? Why have I not done it? I think that that too many restrictions. It's um it it creates mythical monsters. So that's a term that I I heard used at Broadmoor, and they'll say people will say, oh, this person's done this or they've done that, and they're looking at examples like you speak of, where a couch has been used to hit a door. Now, when that's on paper and it's relayed later on, I mean, you relayed it to me in a great way, that would indicate to someone to say, right, well, if this person's coming here, we need to give them nothing. How about giving them a chance, maybe? How about when they arrive, giving them a proper assessment and a chance? If the staff are trained properly, they'll be able to manage any kind of risks and then just go, go from there rather than starting with all the restrictions in place and expecting failure. And, and that's exactly what happened when Beth moved. 
You know, she was at yeah. that horrific unit in Wales that I spoke of where you know, they wouldn't even open the door towards the end. No. Beth went from that environment onto a minibus. She travelled yeah. you know, for four hours up to, to near Preston, where she is now. They took her out of the minibus, took her into a flat. She sat down on a normal settee, given, yes. you know, a, a cup of tea. Mum and dad there. She's given a food with a normal set of cutlery, sit in the yeah. lounge, watch a TV, you know, and cuddle the guinea pigs. Perfect. What more could anyone want? And the number of incidents, you know, the incidents don't get measured in minutes or hours now, as in, you know, she might have three an hour. Yeah. They measure the number of incidents on a calendar now. Right. You know, That's she goes... Amazing weeks weeks without episodes of high anxiety because the right people are doing the right thing in the right setting yes yes hospital, and i think hospital people... treatment achieved nothing for bethany right it didn't change her it didn't cure her it didn't heal her it made her worse yes an awful lot of unpicking to do now with beth and that that process is beginning yeah, I think that um, if you, I'm hoping that this lockdown, when we come out of this lockdown, it's going to make people more sympathetic to some of the people in society who are basically locked up because they've had a, they've had a taste of their own medicine, and some of the, the 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 moaning and the people saying how unfair it is that they can't take part in certain activities um, just because the government says they can't. Well. That's exactly what's going on in learning disability because um, people are basing risk assessments on incidents that have happened for the past or because their behaviour fits into a certain pigeonhole. This is how we're going to treat you. I really do hope it's going to make some, make some changes. Can you see anything changing from, from people being subjected to this lockdown? I, I think so. I, I think people will also look at the role of carers as well. Yes. I, I think, you know, so many people have gone into care homes as carers on a daily basis, putting their lives at risk. In hospital settings, the same thing as well. You know, yes. So from that point of view, yes. From the whole free, you know, the loss of liberty that everybody has experienced. You know, like I said, the yes. person who's dealt with this best out of our entire family is Bethany. Yes. Because she's had three years of it previously. Absolutely. She's, she's yeah, freer absolutely. now than, than she has been for three years. Yeah, I can, I can imagine it. So, Jerry, before we wrap up, um, was there anyone you'd like to mention? I know you've talked very highly about this unit where your daughter is now. Um, is there anyone you'd like to thank or mention? Everybody who has supported me on Twitter. You know, yes. the, that has been the saviour of my mental health. You know, the, yes. the offers of help, the the support I was given from MENCAP and the right. Equality and Human Rights Commission um, yes. to fight the, the legal case around the abuse of best human rights. Um, to organisations like Rightful Lives, um, right. they're a campaign group that, you know, if, if you're followers haven't come across them before look up rightful lives um, a yes. lot of knowledge a lot of experience there um, and 
to all the other parents and carers that I've met with, you know, families in similar positions, you know, the, the yeah. support from those guys has been has been massive. So Isabel Garnett okay. um, and, and Kirsten Peebles, people like that. Um, just just thank you guys. You know, I owe you an awful lot. Okay, brilliant. Now, we, we originally spoke, I think we originally spoke on Twitter, but we're definitely going to have a conference. Obviously, the breaks have been put on that quite a bit. Yeah. So I'll be in touch about getting you down for the conference where you can share your story and hopefully there'll be some people there that can, can learn from it. But thank you so much for your time today. Any plans for the rest of today? Uh, it's VE Day. So uh, yes. I, I'm really lucky because we live in a cul-de-sac. And at the end of the oh. cul-de-sac is a lovely big circle. So, Brilliant. you know, we, we can all sit at the end of our drives, be socially distanced um, yes. and have a little bit of a VE day celebration. So, uh, Excellent. Perfect. Well, enjoy your day. Thank you for coming on. And I'm sure we'll speak you. again soon. Okay. Thanks. Thank all the best. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Bye now. Right, that's a wrap. So yeah. thanks you, thanks very much for doing that. It's, it's really insight, really insightful, and thanks for sharing it. I'm sure it's going to help for me because because by trade I'm a restraint trainer. Um, I don't want to get stuck into that 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 model, if you like. And we're always looking at ways of de-escalation and getting other things in. So to hear from an expert such as yourself, that's that's great. Yeah, the uh, the restraint is a difficult one, and it's it's certainly yeah. something that the work I'm doing through the CQC. You know, it is yeah. looking at any any type of physical restraint being that, you know, failure of care. Now, I get where you're coming from because, you know, it, it's about, especially within a school, how do you manage that? Yeah. But yeah. that's then looking at what's happening in the school that's triggering the behaviour. Because at some home, point, yeah, yeah. a need isn't being met. And that's, that's, that's what right. we should be looking at. Yeah, you know, but, exactly. but ultimately an incident will occur that will require restraint that will trigger that response of you know, we need to look at this why is this yeah it's occurring yeah and it is the thing i'll probably send you i'll probably send you an email about this as well see my i'm i'm quite against the regulation of restraint training what i'm more for is the health and safety executive getting more involved where restraints do happen and the the hse saying look this is a this is like an accident like you say it's a, it's a last resort so if someone's been restrained and injured during a restraint like if they slipped on a wet floor or like if they fell off a ladder let's let the hse look in and see if everything's correct because with um with like the restraint reduction network it, it's good but there, there, there aren't really any teeth whereas the hse have got teeth and i think if they started prosecuting schools or prosecute people for not having things in place like risk assessments and training I think that would make make more waves, if you like. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm absolutely dead against reduction training not being done. My, my background oh, yes. is education. I, I spent 22 right. years teaching. And right. the first thing that you naturally want to do when you're taught a new skill is to go out and use it. Have a go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, so with restraint... There's that many different types and techniques, you know, you've got to go through quite a few restraints to, to have gone through your new toolbox. Yes. You know, so we should be teaching the opposite, the de-escalation and get people 
flexing their skills around that instead. Yeah, I'm feeling good about managing to de-escalate things. Like, love the example of the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles, partly because it was my, my era, but they, they'll go home and shine about that, whereas some of the people I speak to, they say, oh, I was involved in a four-hour restraint the other day. Aren't I great? Aren't I strong? Aren't I macho? It's taking that mindset away, isn't it? And saying, yeah, no, you absolutely. know, absolutely. Be, be proud of succeeding. Beth wanted a water fight the other day, and... <laughs> You know, one of the carers said, "Oh, Beth, I haven't got any clothes to uh, to get changed into," and and Beth started to get you know upset because she really wanted a, a water fight. It was hot. Yeah, she's obviously it's where she lives. She's got clothes she could change into, and the guy just went, "Oh, what what can we do as a solution, Beth?" Again, looking back, you know, for Beth, how can Give we de-escalate yeah, myself? Yeah, yeah. And Beth turned around and went, "You could wear some of my clothes." And you know, <laughs> bloody well did. That's excellent. That's yeah. excellent, isn't it? And and that, that is the mindset of everybody in that place. You know, yeah. how uh, oh. it, we, our role exists to help Beth through very difficult times. And, and that's the yeah. way they see it. Yeah. It's yeah. not about what's comfortable oh, for them. It's no. about Beth is the focus. And the fact that Beth is so much easier when she's calm. She's a bloody pleasure to be around. And where is she now? Is she with the Priory now? No, Beth is uh, Merseycare. Oh, that's right, Merseycare. So I'm, I'm in Lytham St Anne's and yeah. my office is in Preston. So when you mentioned Preston, I was trying to work out yeah, which one it is. Oh, that's good. The old Calderstone oh. site. Excellent. They've oh, got great. Um, some of the wards that were obviously multi-occupancy wards. They have turned yeah. into individual flats. Right. So huge open plan space, her own kitchen, obviously her own bathroom. Yeah. Like I said, choice of bedrooms, two different lounges. Garden. I wish I had the garden. It's massive. <laughs> oh, great. Well, Jeremy, that's excellent. You enjoy your day. Great stuff. All the best. Thanks, Doug. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Cheers. Peace Bye. Bye.